Ignition sequence start. Six, five, four, three, two, one, zero. All engine running. Liftoff. We have a liftoff. 32 minutes past the hour. Liftoff on Apollo 11. Tower cleared. Welcome to Space 3D. This episode continues our discussion with David Chudwin, author of I Was a Teenage Space Reporter. In this episode, David describes the physical and emotional impact of witnessing the launch of Apollo 11 at Cape Canaveral in 1969. The day that, of the launch, actually, the weather was very nice. Um, it was you know, partly... Uh, blue sky, a few scattered clouds. In the movie First Man, they showed the launch very inaccurately into a a cloudy, stormy sky, which just never happened. Yeah, I I remember uh, when I saw that as well, I was like, wait a minute, wasn't it like a really bright, sunny day for Florida when I saw that too? The day of the launch started out very early for us. We had gotten bus passes to see the actual walkout of Armstrong, Aldrin, and Collins. So we got up at on July 16th at 4.30 in the morning. Um, I had an old-fashioned travel alarm clock, wind-up travel alarm clock, because, uh, again, there were no, um, no cell phones then at all. Uh, so th- there was the jangle of this alarm clock that awoke us at 4.30 in the morning, uh, got in the car, and then drove to the NASA News Center in Cape Canaveral, and then hopped onto a bus, And the bus took us to the Kennedy Space Center grounds, and it went to what was called them the Manned Spacecraft Operations Building. This is where the astronaut headquarters are. Uh, The building is still there, uh, but it's called the Armstrong Operations and Checkout Building, known as ONC Building. So we got there. um, There was somewhat of a traffic jam, so it took us a while to, to get there. But the bus pulled up um, adjacent to this roped-off area, and when the bus doors opened, there was like a rugby scrum to get uh, the best positions behind the ropes. You know, elbows were flying. Uh, It was uh, quite a thing. Everybody kind of ran to the ropes to get the best position. So we did pretty good. We got a position in the third row and just kind of um, stood there. It was before dawn. It was dark out. And then eventually uh, uh, Deke Slayton came out and did a a television interview, which we couldn't hear, uh, in front of the walkway where the astronauts were coming down. And then a little bit after 6.30 in the morning, there was uh, scurrying around inside the building. We could see through the doors into the hallway, and this white dot started to approach us. And as the, the white dot appeared closer, we could see it was a man in a space suit, and specifically Neil Armstrong was walking out of the doors. Um, There was a crowd inside. There was some NASA officials outside. And uh, they walked forward and uh, waved at the crowd. Um, Both uh, Armstrong and uh, Aldrin gave a thumbs up. Uh, They were smiling. uh, And uh, they walked down the walkway and into the NASA van. As they walked down, uh, all these flash bulbs went out. All the photographers were jostling for position. Uh, At one point, I had an elbow put in front of my camera, uh, and uh, it was different than with photographs. Uh, There was no digital photography, and so you didn't know if your pictures turned out until the film was actually developed. 
And we didn't see the pictures we took until two weeks later when back at home we had the film develop. Oh, wow. wow. So um, if, you, um, if you have the book there on page 114 uh, is the best picture I took of the three astronauts um, uh, exiting the Manned Spacecraft Operations Building. And this was very, really a magical moment. We were seeing the last steps on Earth of the first men to land on the moon. And it was a, a really very emotional and moving experience. It only lasted a couple of minutes, uh, but we felt very privileged to be there. Uh, this scene is shown in the movie, the documentary Apollo 11, uh, but the crowd of reporters is scanned very quickly. But I can't wait until I can get some stills of that, those, that scene to see if we can actually see ourselves there. Yeah, no, very exciting. Um, curious, uh, what type of camera did you have with you? Well, my friend Marv brought an Instamatic camera, um, and that was a, kind of a disaster because the, the shots really didn't show too much. Luckily, my dad had an old Kodak Retina camera. Uh, it was a manual camera from the 1940s. So I, I took that, and I took Kodachrome Color slide film with and uh, that was what allowed me to have 50 years later uh, these uh, um, unusual uh, pictures uh, so different from the standard NASA pictures of the launch of Apollo 11. So uh, through the years, I kept the Kodachrome slides uh, away from light and in a cool spot. And when digital technology became available um, a few years ago, uh, I had the slides professionally scanned by a photographic lab. So these, these photos have now been digitalized and preserved forever. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, this is a great picture. Uh, I can't believe how close you were with an unobstructed view of them on the walkout. That's pretty phenomenal. Yeah, it was really one of the – there were perhaps three high points um, of the visit down there. Uh, first was the walkout. Um, second was the launch itself, which I'll talk about. But then third was um, two nights before the launch, they took us out – to a vantage spot um, about a half a mile from the Apollo 11 Saturn V on, on Launchpad 39. And they took us there at dusk. And as the sun set, uh, it became darker out. Uh, all the lights on the, the gantry on the mobile service structure came on. And then after dusk, uh, they shined these high-intensity xenon lights on the Apollo 5, I'm sorry, on the Saturn V rocket. Uh, and this was an incredible sight, seeing these arcs of light uh, going through uh, and illuminating the rocket. Uh, I described it in my notebook at the time as a jewel in the night, but it was very spectacular. Oh, so so exciting. Wow. Be like a kid in a candy store, just seeing, witnessing all that firsthand. Really phenomenal. You know, you might think, well, how do I remember this you know, 50 years later, but the, the memories are just so intense and the experience was so intense that, uh, you know, it, it's something that I'll never forget. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I saw I saw one shuttle launch live and it definitely made an impression on me. And it, it wasn't as, you know, it wasn't as seminal as, as the Apollo 11 was, obviously. Right. I mean, the experience of a Saturn V launch w was incredible. Um, it after we saw the walkout of the astronauts, we got back on NASA buses and, again, caught in a traffic jam, we went to the uh, Launchpad 39 press, press site. But when we got there, uh, 
it was crowded with a lot of press people, and we saw that there was a NASA bus that could take us to what was called the VIP site. NASA had invited over 5,000 luminaries in all kinds of fields, politicians, uh, engineers, scientists, uh, and Johnny even, Carson. even entertainers. Yeah, so we saw Johnny Carson and Ed McMahon there. Uh, actor Hugh O'Brien was there. And then meeting the, the uh, luminary list was uh, President Lyndon Johnson, uh, who was out of office then. But LBJ and his wife Lady Bird were there, um, accompanied by former NASA Administrator James Webb, uh, whom the telescope is named after. And so we saw them there. Uh, and so as we waited for the countdown to proceed, we also um, saw all these people and interacted with one of them, with some of them. One of the people we interviewed was astronaut Fred Hayes, oh, wow. who was the Apollo 11 backup lunar module pilot. I've, I've gotten to know Fredo through the years, and he was kind enough to write a advanced praise for the book. Uh, but we interviewed him then, uh, and uh, he told us that the crew was ready to go, that it was something that they had anticipated for quite a long time. Wow, that's pretty exciting. Yeah, I wondered um, on the back of your book how you have Hayes, Duke, and Warden, and I'm like, how did you land all three of those guys to uh, to give advanced press? That's, that's, again, very impressive. Well, through the years at different space events, I've met a number of the astronauts. Um, they were aware I was writing the book, uh, and uh, especially those three um, – uh, we're very uh, ready to to write an advanced praise for the book. Um, Fred Hayes did it first, and I think that helped me with, with the other two. That uh, I mean, they knew who I was, but that the book was a legit. Yeah, that's great. All right. So the launch, the launch itself was unbelievable. Anybody who's seen any Saturn V launch uh, knows that there's been nothing like it since then. The um, rocket sat there. We were three and a half miles from the rocket, and that was the approximate distance also of the Launch Control Center, the, the Vehicle Assembly Building, and the VIP site. Now, you might say, why three and a half miles? Well, that was the distance if the rocket exploded uh, that you would be possibly able to survive. Uh, I mean, the astronauts were sitting on a big bomb. I mean, it was uh, fueled by liquid hydrogen, by kerosene, by liquid oxygen. Uh, and, for example, there were over like 700,000 gallons of kerosene uh, sitting there. And so that the um, three-and-a-half-mile limit uh, was the closest that, that people were allowed. So we watched it from the VIP site with the other dignitaries. Uh, there were about 5,000 of them there. And the launch went as smooth as anyone could ever expect. Uh, there were no, no anomalies at all. Uh, and so it got down to 9.32 a.m., and suddenly at the base of the rocket, you could see uh, a small ball of yellow fire. And then suddenly the flames and smoke expanded out to either side of the Saturn V rocket. And what surprised us was and worried me right at the time was it just sat there. It seemed like forever, but it was only a few seconds. But the rocket just sat there spewing flames on either side and then very gradually started to rise up. Uh, at this point, everything was still silent because it takes longer for sound waves to reach you. And so I've been told that it took 10 seconds for the rocket to actually clear the tower. Wow. And that's when we started to hear this noise. 
Uh, it's been described as like a hundred locomotives. It was a, a loud, deafening roar that was crackling. And you not only heard it, but you felt it. It physically pounded your chest. Uh, it caused ground vibrations, so you were shaking. And as the rocket rose, you could actually feel heat from the seven and a half million pounds of thrust three and a half miles away. Oh, wow. I can't imagine what that's like. I, I, I too, have seen a shuttle launch, a night launch, <clears throat> I guess from, well, it was from the causeway, so about three miles away. But um, I don't remember feeling the heat <laughs> of the thing as it, as it rose and how slowly this it sounds like the Saturn V rose because I remember the shuttle once it got off the pad it was hauling the mail pretty pretty fast yeah once the solids were lit a shuttle pretty much hopped off the pad in comparison to the Saturn V I only saw one shuttle launch it was from from a distance but but that's precisely the you know the difference between a Saturn V launch and shuttle launch was that it was so much slower uh as it cleared the tower and we started hearing the sound, it gradually started to pick up speed. And within a couple of minutes, all you could see was a dot of light in the sky. Uh, and as the sound waves um, dissipated, uh, what we heard was just the cheers of, of amazement from, from the crowd itself, everybody clapping and cheering. Wow, incredible. So how long did you, once the, the rocket's off, how long did you stay there, like, in the stands? Like, what kind of what happened after after that immediately? Well, after that, we stayed um, for maybe, a, you know, 20 minutes, a half hour. And we said hello, for example, to Johnny Carson and Ed McMahon. Um, there were a couple of astronauts there uh, who we saw, Tom Stafford, Gene Cernan, Bill Anders, uh, but what we did next was um, one hour after the launch, uh, there was a scheduled press conference at the Pad 39 uh, uh, press site. And this was all the different operational people uh, who gave a report on the launch. And basically everything went normal. And to our amazement and glee, everything went right on time. Wow. That's Just great. a side note on, uh, on launch that's going on. The, uh, have you seen some of the videos of some of the SpaceX launches that go into, they start in the dark and then they rise into the sun? Uh, yes. That, those are amazing with the stage turning around. I had a friend, another aerospace engineer saying, you know, well, that launch failed because I've never seen a, a contrail look like that before. And I'm like, that's because a rocket was turning around in the contrail. But anyway, that's a side, that's a side point. One of the interesting things is if you look at the pictures I've took and the, and they're, they're in the, in the book, um, you can see as the Saturn V rose just off the pad that it started to yaw. It started to go to one side a little bit to avoid hitting the launch tower itself. Uh, and so there was a, a yaw maneuver and then a roll maneuver uh, as, it, uh, as it ascended into the sky. Oh, yeah, you can. Yeah, clearly, like, it looks like it's going to tip over. Wow. Right. Wow, and, cool. and again, the thing the thing that surprised me was the physical nature of the, the launch. In other words, you know, actually feeling like someone's pounding you and vibrating you. And, and secondly, the slowness of it. I mean, for a couple seconds there, I was wondering if the rocket was going to take off or was going to fall back on the, um, you know, on the launch pad. It was going so slowly. Wow. Yeah, phenomenal. So, you know, how long did you end up staying down there then? I mean, because you said you had a week. 
So you'd already been there, what, three or four days by that point. So Right. So I extended my stay a couple of days, but my friend Marv, he wanted to see the landing back at home. Okay. Because he wanted to do tape recordings and, and things like that. So I stayed there. Most of the press flew on to Houston, but mine was a very low-budget operation, and I couldn't afford that. So I stayed at the Cape. Uh, and watch the landing and listen to the landing at the Apollo 11 News Center there. A lot of the people that were left were in my same situation, were, for example, like foreign reporters that didn't have an opportunity to fly to, to Houston. So a lot of the people left, but there were a couple hundred of us there who uh, followed all the events up to the landing at, at the News Center. Oh, Okay. But still, that must have been exciting because you were there with, like, other people, like, you know, a group event witnessing this. So, Well, yeah, the, the two advantages of being there was, first of all, that there were loudspeakers, so-called squawk boxes, that had the voice of uh, commentary, uh, you know, the uh, ground-to-tape, I'm sorry, ground-to-space uh, um, conversations. Uh, but even more importantly, NASA had stenographers who would transcribe the voice comm uh, and about every hour or so, they would lay out sheets of, um, of transcripts uh, of the voice communication. And again, in the book, there's a, a couple of examples of that, for example, of, of the actual landing itself. So the advantage of being at the press center was we could actually hear live all the, the um, air-to-ground communication, and then we were also able to get these transcripts. And uh, I still have the transcripts in my study. They're about like eight and a half inches thick of paper. Wow. So very cool. So what was it like? What was it like to witness the landing? I mean, I mean, the, the actual first walk on the moon. What was that? You know, describe for us uh, just, you know, the your mindset, you know, like watching this and kind of the reaction of other people in the room, that sort of thing. To me, the thing that scared me the most was the landing. Um, the walk on the moon to me seemed to be very symbolic and, and not really that, that uh, difficult or dangerous. Uh, and so the, I was much more concerned about a safe landing. Uh, and in, in that regard, I've always felt that it should be called the first men on the moon and not just the first man. Because uh, Buzz Aldrin played a very important role uh, in the landing, uh, b besides Neil Armstrong, who has seemed to get a lot of the credit. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, Buzz Aldrin was chosen for a reason to be on that crew. And it's, uh, I think that he's been kind of given a short shrift in some of the recent movies uh, about Apollo 11. Mm. And I, I really believe that Aldrin deserves more credit. So it, as far as the landing it, it itself, um, the more I read up about it before the flight, and we had NASA um, press releases, we had NASA um, flight plans, uh, the more concerned I got about the landing. Mm. And uh, it turned out to be fairly um, hair-raising in itself. Uh, the maps that they had did not show the degree of rocks or boulders there that could destroy the lunar module. And so when Neil Armstrong got to the landing site, um, he saw that it was loaded with, with boulders that, that uh, could have been fatal. So he needed to overfly this um, site that had uh, all these boulders, and he couldn't land after that either because there was a small crater there. So he had to find a s area 
which is relatively smooth, and he could safely put down the, the lunar module. Now, this is all flying, uh, the last part of the approach is all him flying by hand. Uh, there, there were met automatic systems to get them down a certain ways, but the final descent uh, was uh, manual. So it took a lot longer for him to land than they thought, and basically they were running out of fuel. There were also some computer alarms which raised a question of, um, of whether they needed to uh, abort the whole thing. At one point, um, Charlie Duke, who was the, um, the capsule communicator, called out to them 30 seconds. What that meant, in effect, was you better damn well land within the next few seconds or you're going to run out of fuel and crash. Yeah, just like your car tank, once it reads empty, you're not sure exactly how much you have left. Right. And so there's some controversy whether they how many more seconds that they had, but, but basically he was in a position where he had to do it. And one of the reasons that Armstrong was chosen uh, for this is that he had a record of being cool under pressure. Uh, he was the commander of Gemini 8, uh, where there was a stuck thruster, and he and Dave Scott were about ready to pass out if he didn't solve the, the situation. Uh, and he did it by disengaging the, the thrusters and saved them from what would have been uh, first U.S. death in, in space up to that point. Uh, another time that he showed his coolness was he was flying the lunar landing research vehicle, which was a, um, a vehicle to test to give practice in, in landing on the moon. And uh, this thing malfunctioned, and he uh, was able to jettison with just a second to spare uh, to um, avoid being killed uh, on that. So he was known for being a very cool, uh, precise pilot and was in many ways a perfect choice to be the first man on the moon. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, we just celebrated the anniversary of that Lunar lunar lander uh, event this past week. Yeah, right. It's right. It's a, a you know if you see the the film from that, it was a pretty scary event, uh, and uh, it's amazing that having jettisoned so close to the ground that that he survived, uh, and and again uh, he had split second re, uh, reflexes to be able to do that. Yeah, no, unbelievable. Yeah, one of the many times that he cheated death. <laughs> So at, at the time of the landing, um, I had some actual tears of joy in my eyes. Um, I was, was so elated. You know, I thought of the 400,000 American and foreign uh, workers who had contributed to Apollo 11. Um, I thought of the Apollo 1 crew, Gus Grissom, mm. Ed White, and Roger Chafee, uh, who um, – who gave their lives in the Apollo 1 fire and who many people felt allowed the landing to be a success by getting rid of improving the Apollo command module uh, after the fire. Uh, so it's it a somewhat emotional moment uh, for me. And uh, I felt very fortunate to be able to uh, witness that at the Apollo 11 News Center. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Space 3D. Join us for the conclusion of our interview with David Chudwin on our next podcast. For Emily Carney and Tom Hill, this is Eleanor Rangers for Space 3D.